Bazaar, we're going to be talking a little bit about heroes, health, embodiment, and comics. I'm so excited. Um, I'm excited in general about all the work that you've been doing, Lisa, and now we get to share it with the world. Um, so let's start actually with um, the first kind of, you know, out of the gate here, this, this uh, edited volume, Heroes of Film, Comics, and American Culture. Maybe you can Tell um, our audience a little bit about that, why this research is important, what sort of discoveries uh, you had along the way, and yeah, let's, let's jump in here. Okay, so um, yeah, I've got it here as well. Um, so this book was actually sort of an oddly serendipitous accident. So I was doing um, my doctoral research, which was on domestic violence. So I was doing research on domestic violence, and there's a core text. It's called Heroes of Their Own Lives. It's by a woman named Linda Gordon. And she was walking through how women subjected to domestic violence in this kind of nadir of attention to domestic problems were having to become their own advocates. So it's like, oh, this is interesting. I proposed a panel at the Northeast Modern Language Association. And you know, I got this paper on Batman from this guy, Mark DiPaolo. He's now a scholar at a University of Oklahoma. And I was like, oh, I didn't even think about superheroes. So I wound up with a couple superhero papers, a couple of other papers. But three publishers contacted me and said, hey, you want to do a book? So I was like, oh, okay. So I spoke to the publishers. And the McFarland person seemed the funnest. So I threw out a call for papers, and this was the book that we came up with. And with the call for papers, I got a ton of superhero submissions. So I was like, oh, I guess, I guess it needs to be superheroes. And at the time, I lived, I probably lived like four blocks from a comic book store. So I was reading The Tick, which was fairly new at the time. I was reading um, the Wolverine uh, Project X series and Earth X and you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's like, oh, I guess everything's coming together. Um, but it's a great group of scholars. And a lot of folks who published maybe their first essay in this book have gone on to great things. So it's been, I think, really interesting from that perspective. But again, it was kind of serendipitous. I wasn't really anticipating putting this book together or what came from it after it had come together. Why do you think superheroes, you know, and, you know, I, I understand, you know, superheroes are so important in that they kind of enact kind of wish fulfillment. They open spaces for agency where we might not have it. But yeah, what, what's your take on why this sort of superheroes for this particular, um, a kind of domestic um, kind of containments and violence and so on? Well, one of the things that I was surprised to learn when I started working on this particular volume was the very first issue of Action Comics begins in a setting of domestic violence. So that's the first thing that Superman does is he intervenes in a setting of domestic violence. And if you think about you know, Captain America or Iron Man or any of these heroes, the real notion of what a superhero does is that they're bridging that domestic space with some sort of public action or advocacy. So I was like, wow. And again, I hadn't really even thought of it. It was people who proposed things to these panels or to the books that really opened my eyes to what this type of research could be or what kinds of questions you could ask. Um, one of the contributors to this book, David Coughlin, who now heads the English department at University of Limerick, he wrote about 
animal man. And I was like, I'd never seen academic work like that before. So he linked sort of the idea that the superhero is coded as naked to sort of images of masculinity picked up by the Nazi party and kind of walked that through. I was like, that's amazing. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, and it's so important, right? Um, this kind of space for the, really giving agency and voice to the, vul- the most vulnerable of our population, um, children, women, um, victims of you know, domestic abuse, uh, the world you know, over, um, those who have been sort of traditionally sort of pushed to the margins in terms of race and sexuality. Yeah, really um, important. I'm so glad you're doing this work. Um, yeah, what is health humanities? Right. So one of the questions about health humanities is whether or not there's any one such thing as health humanities. So um, I think it was Jack Coulihan who first thought about what medical humanities should be and said it should be both leveraging the humanities to make better physicians, to kind of humanize medicine, but also to allow people in the humanities to mount a critique of the culture of medicine. So those two things don't always jive particularly well, and it kind of creates this tension. So you see bodies of publishing that really don't go together very well, but they're kind of all medical or health humanities. And then there's this other aspect, uh, transitioning bodies. So in your work and in this, um, in this volume that you ed- co-edited, what, is, what do these two kind of concepts actually mean? So, um, so Stephanie Helter, who's the co-editor, had in, I think it was 2014, the American Comparative Literature Association did a couple of seminars on transitioning bodies. She's particularly interested in intersexuality and how in like 17th and 18th century France, notions of what it meant to be sort of an intersex person played out in public, in kind of the media, so newspapers, but also in the development of medical culture. So identity and gender had to do a lot with kind of mapping the bodies of intersex people. So this is kind of where you get medical charts from and things like that. And what's the medical case? All of this was sort of based in this area. Um, But then the next year we put up panels on transitioning and bodies. And I was kind of interested in infection and disease and what happens when the body transitions through different kinds of states of being. So not just gender transition, but also kind of any type of corporeal transition. So the book wound up being, and again, we put the the session up at a conference and publishers just started to approach us to do a volume. So we wound up going with Rutledge and the book, it's just, it's great. We have a group of people who we'd met either at the American Complet Association or the International Complet Association. A couple of folks I knew from um, doing medical rhetoric at the Rhetoric Society and the book wound up kind of taking on these theoretical questions of how can we sort of frame for ourselves what it means to have a human body and what are the transitions in thought that start to underpin the ideology that informs those kinds of decisions. Yeah, really fascinating. And, um, you know, if we kind of move to your work in back again to, um, or, or always already there, comics, um, 
you know, issues of the body, embodiedness, um, wellness, um, through the visual means, right? The visual, the drawn word means of comic books. And you have a chapter in the uh, Gender and Sexuality Companion volume for Rutledge that I put together. Um, can you talk a little bit about that empirical looking, um, situating multiple elements of radioactive Marie and Pierre Curie, a tale of love and fallout as vehicles for articulating a place for women in science. Yeah, that's kind of a big title. When I look at it, I was like, that's getting a little wordy there. Um, so this is a book and it is by Lauren Redness. It's the first graphic narrative to be nominated for the National Book Award, it was a finalist. And she herself is really nice. She was very supportive. She read the chapter before I sent it to the book and et cetera. Um, so I was in, I've been involved, as we've said, with the American Comparative Literature Association Conference. So in 2017, that met in Utrecht. So Stephanie and I put up panels again, and I picked up this particular graphic novel, and I read it in Paris in all the settings where it's set, which I thought was a really lovely, it was kind of an embodied way to experience the book. And when thinking about kind of gender and sexuality and thinking about kind of Marie Curie as a figure, I was like, oh, that's really interesting because as a woman embodying science, she's kind of this exemplar of like the lone woman scientist. She's really not the only woman scientist who was working at the time. There were dozens and dozens of women working at the time, but she's the only one we hear of. And the book isn't really just about her, it's about her and her daughter and her granddaughter. So how we have this like long legacy of women in science. So it's like, oh, this is fascinating. But the way that Redness decided to put the book together is also just fascinating. So what you have up there is her original artwork, but she also has kind of historical documents, scientific information, photography. She's got work about kind of um, like, you know, embodied states of somnambulism and sort of other things that are a little bit more floofy. And in order to make sense of the book, you need to kind of read across all this material and put it together, which mimics how scientists read across science. So that's what I wrote about. So if you're a scientist and you're going to read on a topic, you, you pull like 50 papers and you read across 50 papers to build an epistemology for yourself. So this book requires that type of reading in order to kind of build these sorts of understanding, which is not very humanistic in my experience, at least. It seems, too, that her um, use of the visuals and the textual elements is also a kind of radical revision of the body of the comic book or the graphic narrative. Right. Well, even the font that she uses, that font is a graphic narrative that she designed. So that's a visual that she designed for the book in order to give it a specific visual appearance. So this kind of interaction like text versus image, it's really very interesting. I mean, I just think it's fascinating, the work that she did and kind of listening to her interviews about it. And she was a fellow at the New York Public Library when she did this work. So big online exhibition. There was also an exhibition at the public library that I had gone to see. Mm. So it was kind of this multimodal and embodied in multiple ways. And I believe they also did a film that came out last fall. Mm. So there's kind of a lot of work that she, like she herself is embodying these differences. 
So I think that's also pretty interesting. Love that. Yeah. So what else are you working on? Um, I know you're constantly working on, um, but especially in the area of comics and um, right. yeah. So, um, so Tom Giddens, who is at University of Dundee, is doing a volume under the aegis of the Comic Studies Society. And it's comics and critique. And the notion behind this volume was to do critiques of comics that were not based in semiotics. So things that were kind of outside Terry Gronstein's sort of notion of arthrology. And how can you take sort of different modes of literary understanding? So I took health humanities because I'm interested in that. And I talked about these two domains of health humanities. I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. Is there work that actually bridges those domains? So the image here on the right of this is the uterus. This is the wandering uterus and he's kicking the human brain over there because he wants to get babies, I believe. Um, so I met the artist Creta Wilberg, who was the first artist in residence at the New York Academy of Medicine. I met her at a health humanities conference a couple years ago and she presented on this and she was really cool and nice. Her work was really interesting. I'm like, oh, maybe I could write about this. And then I also picked up a, the book on the, the image on the left is um, Heloise Chauchois, who's a French artist. They're both medical illustrators. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. They're medical illustrators. So they work on the medicine side but they're also doing these graphic narratives. So I kind of walked through what these might mean and whether or not they fully integrate both domains of the health humanities. I think I decided sort of no, but they're kind of trying to. Mm -hmm. Do you think it is possible to do something with comics, the graphic narrative form that, I don't know, a straight up kind of, you know, um, medical illustration or a straight up alphabetic narrative mm -hmm. can't do? Well, I mean, I think if we look at like say Terry Gronstein's arthrology or the work that say Hillary Shute does, then I think the answer is pretty obviously yes. There's affordances to this combination of visual material and text that kind of gets at different kinds of experience. So there are types of experience, like sort of what Judith Butler would, would term kind of abject or unlivable experience. You can kind of cobble these things together. And I believe that Hilary Shute does a very good job of this in these kind of, I don't know that highbrow is exactly the right word for them, but they're kind of like strongly academically accepted, kind of part of an academic canon and, and quite well respected for their um, sort of gravitas. Mm -hmm. So then the question, which is some other work that I do becomes, is it all comics or is comics just kind of like, is it like the novel? So you can have like really junky ones and you can have ones that do sort of more lofty things. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Really um, nice distinction. Um, what about this fear and safety affective spaces in European literature arts and cinema, that sounds actually quite, you know, lofty, I suppose. It's kind of baggy. So this is one of the, um, they didn't want to do a proceeding. So they're doing a couple of different volumes. So it's the European Network of Comparative Literary Studies. So I had mentioned David Coughlin, who wrote for my first book. So there's a, there's a graphic narrative research group for the International Comparative Literature Association. So he and I are both founding members. So a group of us went to Helsinki because the ENCLS was having a meeting 
and Fear and Safety was the title, and this is one of the books that they're putting out. So I have a graphic narrative chapter in it, and I wrote about representations of PTSD in graphic narrative. So this is one of those sites, right? So Hilary Shute speaks about this pretty specifically. She's talking, but she's talking about things like Joe Sacco's work, or you know, things that are uh, like a, a Mouse or Persepolis or that type of work. And it's like, okay, what I was interested in is, well, can you look through different kinds of graphic narrative canons? So what does it mean to have a graphic narrative canon? So I've got the Smurfs over here on the right. So this is kind of our, you know, kitty bandesine sort of work. And the work here on the left is from uh, Jonathan Hickman's book, The Nightly News. So that's, I want to say it's a Vertigo imprint. Oh, no, actually it's from Image Comics. But Image and Vertigo, they do these adult comics. Mm -hmm. But they're not really part of an academic canon. So they're serious, but not academically respected and I also kind of walked through some superhero stuff as well and I just kind of walked through different sites of PTSD so I talked about Transmetropolitan for example and the nightly news and fables which is Bill Willingham's series that came out I think that's also under the vertigo imprint if you know what that is mm -hmm. yeah so what I was getting at is the idea that you can locate these sites of PTSD in multiple different spaces and the PTSD can do different things now because you've got these visual and textual overlaps. Yeah. But kind of enough, as you can tell from this fair, fairly broad array of stuff that I kind of slammed up onto the board and talked about, there's probably enough in there for a monograph, but I mashed it all down into a paper for the purposes of this particular lofty volume because it has literature arts and cinema in it yeah i love that you're looking at really kind of popular cultural comic spaces because um i you know i love don't get me wrong like i teach persepolis and mouse and all that but there's something in bechtel etc but there's something like it still doesn't feel like it's all that different to kind of a literary studies class you know um, but when I teach superheroes or I teach, um, you know, uh, well, Bon Dessine or, you know, any of the examples you've given, it feels like I'm really taking the students to a place that they had no idea, you know, could happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, that this stuff in their everyday lives is actually doing really important, interesting stuff like PTSD, right? Right. Um, um, Creator Wilberg's work that I talked about in that other paper, when I've shown that to students, and again, I teach in our medical school and I teach undergraduates and we've got freshmen. I also was teaching in a summer program for pre-freshmen. So confronting them with that stuff, they're like, whoa. And it's really interesting. And it's not like, it's not Superman and it's not a Smurf, but it's also not Persepolis and it's not Mouse and it's not academically canonical. Tell me about this, you know, the, I guess this is the ICLA proceedings from 2016, the supposition, superposition of states and as reception and representation in graphic narrative. And you have Superman in all, right, in this sort of multiplicity uh, moment and then the multiversity, Grant Morrison. Yeah, what this looks and sounds really fascinating to me. Yeah, this one's pretty exciting for me anyway. So... 
Um, if I go back to my days being part of the Northeast Modern Language Association, I became friends with this woman, Marceline Block, who does film theory. And she did a, a book on the feminist gaze that came out, I don't know, 2008, 2009 timeframe. And I did a paper for her where I looked at Jurassic Park and the 13th Warrior, and I thought about quantum physics and how in quantum physics, the superposition of states means that your quantum particle can be in this multiple different states at once, but it can also be in multiple different places at once, right? But if you look at it as a researcher, then that's what fixes the state. So it's like, oh, that's really interesting. So in Jurassic Park, it kind of violates this idea of a gendered gaze or even kind of a queer gaze, right? Because a queer gaze is filling in a site of absence. And this gendered gaze, the Laura Mulvey thing, is like you're like, okay, well, you can construct an object of visual pleasure based on its assigned gender. But this, I'm like, part of the site of monstrosity in these movies is you don't know what it is. Is it a dinosaur? Is it not a dinosaur? Is it a monster? Is it a man? Is it a bear? We don't know what it is. But the worst part of it is we don't know if it's male or female. So as bad as it is, is it maybe it's a Tyrannosaurus, maybe it's a goat, maybe it's your friend, but the worst part of it is we don't know what gender it is. So it's like, oh, well, what happens if we take this idea and try to map it into comics because in film you can kind of play with hidden and revealed spaces in a very different way. But in comics, comic books pick up this idea fairly explicitly. So Grant Morrison picks this up explicitly. And so this is the image on the left is from crisis on infinite earths. I want to say, and they're taking up this idea explicitly. So multiple universes, superposition of states, and then, you can illustrate that quite directly. So the, the, the chapter also, it's got stuff from fables in it. So if you look at particularly some of the very early and very late books in fables, they show how different characters are inhabiting different states. So like the big bad wolf, he's a man, he's the wind, and he's the big bad wolf. So you'll have images where he's a man, but his shadow is a wolf. Or he's a wolf, but he's also made out of ice and he's also frozen and there's also wind. So it's really, for me, quite interesting. And when I started looking for sites where things are multiple things at once, again, you can find them in different kinds of graphic narrative canons. Mm. Really fascinating. Um, leading, me, leading us kind of in and around back to some of the kind of deep views, worldviews, impulses in your work um, around health and embodiment. This new edited volume that you're working on with Jody. Um, how does this fit with um, kind of health, wellness studies, um, the sort of, uh, the kind of a long tradition of mind-body studies, but maybe most specifically, how does it enter into and complicate the space of graphic medicine. Right. So this is kind of interesting for me because for me, graphic medicine sits pretty firmly on the clinical or medical side of that health humanities divide that we talked about before. So graphic medicine, are there stories of illness or stories of caretaking or stories of healthcare delivery or works that themselves engage in that process? So they engage in healthcare delivery or they engage in conveying medical information. So if we think back to those medical illustrators, 
So their work that actually conveys medical information is graphic medicine. And Creota Wilberg is, I think she's one of the founding members of this conference, but she's very active in that role as well. So there is some graphic medicine in our volume, but we take a slightly broader view. So we're considering graphic narrative broadly constituted. So some of it's adaptations of graphic narrative as well. So there's people writing about television or film adaptations of things that were originally comic books. And this was another case where we put up some seminars and publishers started contacting us. So we had multiple different publishers contact us again. And in talking through what we could do with the volume with, I think this was Paul Grave McMillan that we decided to go with, there seemed to be a space for something that pretty explicitly took up graphic narrative. So we tried to find a way to situate work so that it's filling in gaps in the literature. So if we're thinking about people who are trying to offer graduate courses in kind of medical humanities or disability studies, but also women and gender studies, we wanted to have an entry that could really do multiple different things for multiple different people, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, what it, I mean, just kind of from your own personal experience, from your research, what is wellness? Like what, you know, we talk about it, it's in our culture. We have it in graphic narrative form. We have it in films. It's like everything seems to work itself out toward this like teleology or this narrative trajectory toward like a wellness state. So we go through suffering somehow and then we end up, gosh, it just feels like maybe we're sort of upside down here. I don't know. What do you, what's, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, that's a really, really interesting question. So, so when I was a graduate student, one of the, so actually, so when I was a graduate student, I'm just going to out myself here. I walked out of my first set of orals, which graduate students aren't supposed to do, but I was naughty. But I was working with um, Lisa Cartwright and David Rodowick. And one of the things that I was looking at, because David Rodowick was very interested in this, was melodrama. So he's like, I think melodrama is really important, and it's important to the type of work that you wanted to do with graphic, uh, not with graphic narrative, but with um, domestic violence. So if we think about melodrama, it constructs the world in a specific, predictable way. And... If you're good, right, and everybody wants to think that they're good, right? So Linda Williams talks about how all melodramas kind of want to begin and end in a space of innocence. And your victim is also your hero, and your hero is also a victim, right? So we want these narratives to be the case. So you could think about, like, sociology of medicine. So Deborah Lupton kind of walks through this narrative. So this is the culturally appropriate narrative that we're all healthy all the time and we're never in pain. And if you get pregnant, you automatically have a healthy baby. And if you get cancer, you get better. And this is part of why AIDS was such a big problem in the 80s and 90s, because we have this new incurable thing. So the melodramatic social narrative is, well, let's stigmatize the population that's getting this disease and make them bad, right? So um, I'm working on a paper right now about this web series. It's called After Forever. I don't know if you know it. But it, um, it's a little web series that won a bunch of Emmys a couple of years ago. And the two people who did to make it, they're 50-something gay men. And they wanted a narrative that represented that group. 
well, the narrative is it's two husbands and one of the husbands dies. And then what happens after this, it's this kind of personal as political because the person who wrote this, uh, Michael Slade, this was actually his story as well. But these spaces don't reinforce this melodramatic narrative. All you get in this narrative is best quality of life. So if we're thinking about wellness, it can kind of be anything. And this is part of the tension that goes back for me to the difference between those two domains of health humanities, right? The medical domain is not a melodramatic domain. Like you don't know what the heck is going to happen next. These things come up and it sucks, right? So we've got the COVID emergency right now. The COVID emergency sucks, but people who are deeply inculcated into the culture of medicine are like, yes, this sucks. And sometimes people die and I might die. And this is part of the act of courage that is required for living. But most people kind of want this Hollywood ending. And I think that that's part of the tension that we're seeing in cultural production, but also in the type of work that we're putting up here. Or even your book with the, the gender work, like, if we're really thinking deeply about gender and what does gender mean and what does gender difference mean, then there are whole categories of people who all the time are put into this one down position. So there are people who never have access to this. And then what does that mean for lived experience? Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you for kind of tying this all together for, for us. Um, teaching this, teaching, right? Teaching is, gosh, that's where we're kind of, in many ways, if it's not in our work and in this kind of a space, um, it's teaching. Why does, why does what you do matter in the classroom? Well, it's a, one of the things I love about working with like a, a graphic narrative or a comic book is you can get students to read like a squillion tons of theory. And like, they don't think that it's bad because like they got to look at a comic book. So I taught a disability studies class and we looked at stitches and then I had them look at some theory and they were like happy as clams and stitches is not a happy book. That's a very unhappy book. It's creepy. It's bad. It's weird. We also looked at Creator Wilberg's wandering uterus book because it's, it's short. It's like eight pages. So we looked at that one as well. And they just were able to take on so much because they felt comfortable. Like they felt like they knew what it was. They felt like there wasn't a wrong answer. So I think that those things really help students. And I've used radioactive in multiple different settings with different students as well. And you can just do a lot with that type of work because it's so rich. And we were talking about this a little before we started uh, filming, but what the expectation is that one has of the student, I think also can kind of lend to allowing them to just kind of be exploratory. So if I assign radioactive to my freshmen, I really don't expect them to actually read the whole thing. So I ask them to think about reading this and what are you inclined to read and what are you not inclined to read and why? And then can you think through why it would be that you might have to read something you don't like? And then how do you manage that activity? So because it's a comic book, they've got more to work with. There's less text. So you don't really need to kind of be drilling down in that way that makes them all feel like they're being tortured half to death, which they don't like. They don't like that at all. 
So. Right. That's true. Yeah. So a way to kind of invite into a space, um, a creative space that becomes a kind of constructively critical kind of um, knowledge making space. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. You can help them be, if it, as long as we're not blaming about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I've actually seen colleagues act, absolutely cudgel a student with a graphic narrative. And it's like, no, don't do that. You know, it's just like, just be nice. They're, you know, their little brains are, you know, they're developing. But yeah, so as long as we're nice to them. Yeah, always, always. Yeah. Um, so where for you, um, I can kind of, you know, guess maybe, but where for you is the vitality in comics today? Well, it's really funny when I saw this slide, because we've got stitches, imagine wanting only this and marbles, all of which are being dealt with in the book that Jody and I did. So it's like, oh, that's really funny. So this is this is like a graphic medicine selection here, kind of. Um, so one of the things that I've been really interested in is I started looking at books by um, Jim Ottaviani. Do you, uh, do you know who he is? No. Oh, so he does um, books for younger readers, and they're really kind of science-y. So the, the chapter that I put into the book that I did with Jody, it deals with primates, which is Jim Ottaviani and Maris Wicks. I used to live in Somerville, Massachusetts. So I lived within a 30-minute walk of all these famous comic book stores. So I was at one of them, and Maris was doing a, a signing. So she signed this book for me. So this one's about um, different women in science. So I did this and then plus Radioactive again for the, the chapter for that book. But Jim Ottaviani, he does all these books. He's got this with Stephen Hawking. And he's got one on um, Richard Feynman that Candida Rifkin did, a, did an essay on for um, graphic biography. And he's written about like the dinosaur hunters. And he, he, he's kind of done all this stuff. I'm like, this is really fascinating because it's for younger people. But it takes on academically serious topics but it's not academically canonical and it doesn't fit into any of those other canons we're talking about. So I guess I'm always interested in like, where are we pushing the boundaries? So he also has one on um, uh, touring and there's multiple actually books. I picked up a bunch of things in France. I was in Paris and I was staying near all the comic book stores and I picked up a couple books about um, Alan Turing there as well. I'm like, those are interesting, interesting stories because they push on so many different boundaries. So this kind of vanguard of new knowledge, but what does it mean to be sort of an embodied person when you're, you know, it's like illegal to be you Mm -hmm. and you're also doing this groundbreaking work. Like for me, I think those are really important questions. And again, in a, in a setting like this, you can get a mess of freshman engineering students, you know, who basically want to be grunting and like watching football and they'll deal with those questions because you put it into a format that's non-threatening. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a great tip. And, um, um, well, gosh, this whole conversation has been absolutely amazing, Lisa. Um, and clearly, you know, the work you do, the work we're doing matters, comics matter, And um, thank you for joining us today for a video cast of Professor Latinx. Well, thank you so much for having me.